we've been looking at Paul's letter to the church at Rome and we have seen that Paul is here expounding the gospel of Christ and he has been doing this because of his planned visit to Rome and he wants to explain to them in detail what this gospel message is in order that when he arrives in Rome, as he planned to do, there would be no confusion about what he was going to say. There would be no confusion about the gospel message. There would be no confusion as to what is a Christian. And they would already understand something of his teaching about the nature of the church. And so in the first three chapters... Paul spells out what the gospel is and he begins in verse 18 of chapter 1 by explaining to them that God's anger is poured out against sin and against sinners and in the following verses of chapter 1, chapter 2 and down to chapter 3 verse 20 Paul is proving that <coughs> excuse me, all men everywhere without exception are sinners they are under the wrath of God and they are in desperate need of salvation 64 verses and then in the 6 verses that follow in verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3 Paul explains the gospel proper that men are made right with God on the basis of the work of another on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ because he has died and in dying he has suffered the punishment for sin and so therefore people can be forgiven if and only if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ only if they put their trust in him in chapter 4 Paul then goes on to prove that this is not a new idea he has concocted but rather is to be found throughout the Old Testament by taking the examples of Abraham and David the two greatest men in the Old Testament the heroes of the Jews Abraham was made right with God by what he believed not by what he did and Paul stresses this it was not because he was circumcised it's not because he walked with God he did those things because he believed but it was because he believed that God counted him as being righteous Abraham was made right with God by his faith and we are made right with God in just the same way by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ God accounts us righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done and so we are saved by the grace of God through faith in the work of Jesus Christ it's not just that we say oh I believe it's not our belief that saves us it's the one we believe in that saves us we need to be very clear on that because there are some people who say oh I believe and I believe I believe 
You ask them what they believe and they're not always very sure. And then last time we saw in the beginning of chapter 5, the first five verses, some of the blessings that result from being right with God. Most importantly, we know peace with God. And this peace comes to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit who is given to all those who believe when they believe. We saw that it is a very serious error to say that the Holy Spirit is received after someone has been converted. Someone cannot be converted unless they have received the gift of the Holy Spirit promised to all those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in looking at the fruit of justification, we now come on to the next five verses, sorry, the next six verses, verses 6 to 11, where Paul now turns from the subjective, that is what we feel within our hearts, to the objective, that is what we can see outwardly. So the cues that you're sitting on, they're objective. The way you feel about the cues is subjective, that's inside you. But outside, there are the pews. It's something that someone else can see. We can't see the way you feel about the pews. So Paul now expresses the external aspects of the blessings of justification, which are very important for us. And we need this because there are times when we get down and depressed and low and we need to be reminded of certain things. It's also possible to feel good and happy and well just because we've had a particularly nice meal. It's important that we're able to distinguish between the two. It's important that we know we're Christians on the right basis and not just because we happen to have certain religious feelings. We need to be sure that we have received peace from God and we need to be reminded of how that comes about. Some people might have the thought in their minds, especially if they have encountered true Methodism of the Wesleyan variety, or anything that's associated with that, because John Wesley taught that you could have assurance that you could know your sins are forgiven, that you could be at peace with God, but that assurance was only an assurance of present standing with God. And it told you nothing about how you would be in five years' time, or ten years' time, or on the day of judgment, should that be later. And Wesley and his brother and Methodist since, if they're real Wesley and Methodists, that is, teach that it is possible to know in the present your sins forgiven, but it is possible at some future date to lose that forgiveness and to go back into an unconverted state. It is possible to lose your salvation. Then possible to have it again and to lose it and have it and lose it. But they say it's possible to be saved and then to be lost. And this is a cause of a great grief among some people and they think, well I know now that God has forgiven me and God has saved me but I don't know if I can keep it up. I don't know that I can keep on in the faith. 
there are all these conflicts around me, there are all these difficulties, there are these things that are going to lead me astray. And Paul is now showing how we can have comfort and assurance about these things for the future, as well as the enjoyment of God's love in the present. So that's what we're going to come on to look at. But just before we do, we need to just make some passing comments about what some people see to be a conflict between love and anger, between love and wrath, love and judgment. You have people, those who have been particularly influenced by liberalism, by those who deny the Bible, into thinking that either God is a God of love or he is a God of wrath and fury. And what you find, any good self-respecting liberal would turn to the Bible and he'd look at parts of the Old Testament and say, how awful, look, this God commanding that people be destroyed, this God destroying the firstborn of the people of Egypt, this God bringing pestilence and judgment upon the people of Israel, (coughs) that is not the God that I believe in, that's a God of wrath and fury, I don't believe in that God, I believe in the God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a God of love and not a God of wrath and fury. The God that I believe in would not send anybody to hell. And so therefore what they do is this, when they come across passages that speak about God as a God of wrath, they say, oh, that's a hangover from the Old Testament. We don't need to believe that anymore. Because you cannot have anger and wrath and fury where you have love. So I believe in a New Testament God, not an Old Testament God. All they're showing is their complete and utter ignorance or gross wickedness. Ignorance if they don't know that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is a God of wrath and fury. I think you have heard me quoting sufficient of the New Testament, of the words of Jesus, to know that that is the case. What these people do is to say, oh, but Jesus would never have said that, he's been misreported. And so they make the Bible say what they want it to say. We're not to do that. This is the word of God. If the Bible says it, then it's true, whether we like it or not. But it's a result of liberalism. People saying, oh no, they're they're antagonistic towards each other. You cannot have the wrath of God with the love of God. It's either one or the other. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what this passage says. And if you want to understand the love of God, you've got to understand the wrath of God. You've got to have the two together. Paul is showing us here that God's love only really makes sense in the light of his anger and his judgment. Just look and see how Paul describes the likes of you and I. What does he say in verse 6? The ungodly. What does he say in verse 8? Sinners. What does he say in verse 10? (coughs) Enemies. Enemies of God. This is how we're described. We are opposed to God. We're 
ungodly. We're his enemies. We're sinners. We're against God. Is it any wonder, therefore, that God is angry with those who are sinners? It doesn't matter what age we are, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're middle-aged. We're sinners, we're God's enemies, and God's angry with us. Now, we have a tendency only to associate with those who we like. Only to meet and talk to and be friendly with those that we get on with. It's part of our nature. But if God did that, God would not have anything to do with any of us. Would he? Would you have anything to do with yourself? Knowing what you're really like? I wouldn't. And if I really knew what you were like in your heart, I probably wouldn't want to have anything to do with you either. Because inwardly we're corrupt, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. And most foul within are we. And yet, in spite of that, God sent his Son into the world. Notice verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for those whom he got on with and thought were nice people. Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were nice, upright, religious people, Christ died for us. No, doesn't say that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For when we were the friends of God and did all the things that God said, we were reconciled to God. No. Verse 10 says, For if we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. God did these things while we were his enemies. Now Paul gives an illustration here. Verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare to die. It's suggested that the difference between a righteous man and a good man is that a righteous man is someone who says, I'm a righteous man. And a good man is someone who doesn't go around bragging about it and gets on with doing it. And we can think of illustrations of this. We can think of examples from wars where people have sacrificed their own life for the sake of others. There is the story in the book uh, Miracle on the River Kwai. Now you've probably all heard of and perhaps even seen the film Bridge on the River Kwai. An entertaining piece of fiction. Actually it was far worse than that. And every day they went out with their picks and shovels to build the railway. At the end of the day, they handed in the picks and shovels and they were all counted so that the prisoners could not use them as a means of escape. And one day they found they were one shovel short. So the Japanese were very angry and they said, Okay, who's got it? And nobody answered. And the Japanese got very angry and insisted, Who's got it? Nobody answered. And so then they said, Okay, if the culprit will not own up, we will shoot all of you. At that point, a Christian stood forward and said, It was me. 
and the Japanese soldier then took his gun and beat this man around the head and killed him. They then counted the picks and shovels again. They discovered that they couldn't count very well. They were all there. But this man, in order to save the lives of all the others, had given up his own life for his friends. You can think of many other examples, I'm sure. Not just from wars either, when people have taken this great sacrifice for the sake of other people. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't do that. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't do it for his friends. The Lord Jesus Christ did it for his enemies. Can you imagine that instead of it being one of the English prisoners who got up and said, it was me, one of the Japanese soldiers had got up and said, no, it was me, kill me instead. And we would think, well, the Japanese would never do that. Would we ever do that? Highly unlikely. But that's what God did. The Lord Jesus Christ gave up his life for you and I. Sinners, wicked people, deserving nothing from God. While we were enemies. So if God did this for us while we were enemies and has now made us his friends, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and have received the Spirit within, and know God's love and forgiveness in our hearts, if God's done this for us while we were his enemies, and he's made us into his friends, then what's he going to do for us now that we're his friends? Well, Paul spells it out. Verse 9, much more having now been justified, made right with God by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The day of judgment, the wrath of God will be revealed, and we will be saved from that wrath by Jesus Christ. And we can know that. We've been saved from our sins and made God's friends by Christ. We can know for certain that we will be delivered from wrath on the day of judgment. Verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God, through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God's already done the big part of it. He's come to his enemies and made them his friends. Now that we're his friends, is there anything that God will withhold from us? The glorious thing about the gospel, not only do we have a present assurance of forgiveness in our hearts, but we have a guarantee for the future that we will be saved on the day of judgment from the wrath of God. And so we see there is no conflict at all between God's love and God's wrath. We can only really understand God's love when we see his anger. Have you really seen how angry God was with you because of your sin? Then you will see the magnitude of the love of God. If you have a liberal view of God, that God is not a God of anger, well, big deal. So God loves us. 
if we say that we were God's enemies. And that even as his enemies, God sent his son for us to die for us, in order to make us his friends. How great and how wonderful does the love of God appear in contrast. Paul says here, much more shall we know of God. Much more having been justified by his blood shall we be saved from wrath through him. If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When you get home, turn to Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 and have a read there of what Paul has to say about what God is going to do for those who have repented of sin and have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul gets so carried away with his description, all his punctuation goes out the window. Ephesians chapter 1 is one sentence in Greek and it's only in the English translation that the punctuation has been added to make it easier for us to understand. But you read through this and you find what Paul is saying is, you think God has blessed you now. You wait until eternity. You wait until you get to heaven and then see how much God can bless you. You've got a mere drop in the bucket at the moment. No, not even a bucket, the ocean. It's a piffling little thing that God's done for you so far because God's got so much more to do for you in the future. What a glorious thought. How good and gracious God is. We don't deserve this, but God is a God of grace. Just you wait to see how much God can bless you when he really gets going. And that's what we'll know in eternity. And yet this is to be given to those who are God's enemies, who are ungodly sinners. How wonderful is God. How great is his love. What a wonderful saviour is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice also in verse 11. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There is another favourite word of the liberal, but it's totally distorted and perverted. I get sick of hearing this word because it's so misused. And you'll hear religious people on the radio and on the television saying, the gospel is all about reconciliation. And so therefore we should be involved <coughs> in the conflict in Yugoslavia, bring the Serbs and the Bosnians and the Croats together so make them friends. And the whole of the gospel is about making people friends with each other. That's not what Paul says. Through now we've received the reconciliation with God. You never hear these clerics saying that. It's reconciliation with God. Forget about reconciliation between all the different peoples of the former Yugoslavia and any other part of the world. It's a waste of time unless first a person is reconciled to God. Once you're reconciled to God, then you can start getting worried about those things. But it's reconciliation with God that comes first. And it's through Jesus Christ that we are reconciled to God. It's through Jesus Christ we are made into God's friends. 
Well, let's try and use the word properly. Let's seek quickly to apply some of these things. Let's ask, first of all, the important question. Have we truly been converted? Do we know God's love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us? And we look back and say, yes, there was a day and an hour when I repented of my sin and put my trust in Jesus Christ. For me, that day was nearly 20 years ago. 20 years ago in a couple of weeks' time. Do you know such a time when God forgave you of your sins and made you right with God and gave you peace within are you now enjoying the benefits of that conversion? Are you now enjoying peace with God? Are you now walking with God? Do you enjoy his blessings upon you in your soul? Do you have any doubts in your mind as to your long-term spiritual welfare? You look at your heart and still see corruption there and say to yourself, but I'm so wicked still, how can God continue to deal with me at all? And how can I know that I'm not going to at some day fall away and become once again an object of his wrath? Well, we have the teaching of this passage. If he has truly saved you, you will endure. But it's also a spur to endurance that you need to confirm day by day what you claim is true in your heart to walk with God. But the great joy is that if we do do those things and if we do know God's peace in our hearts then we can be sure that we will not fail we will not fall away he will keep us and he will preserve us until the end it may not be easy we may have a difficult time, but he will keep us, and he will preserve us. But that's why we must be sure that we're his. There's no point in gritting our teeth and trying to endure if there's nothing at all in our hearts. We must be sure that we are his. We must be sure that we have been saved. And then we can have this confidence in the present about the future and have no doubts or fears about where we are going to go. There are many who claim that they are Christian believers, that they are right with God, and yet at some point in the future they do fall away. They merely prove that they were never Christians, they were never converted in the first place. We need to be sure that we really are His. Otherwise that might happen to us as well. And so having such a confidence in God, if it is justified, then let us seek to please God in all that we do and to demonstrate our gratitude and our love to him for all that he's done in making us who are his enemies, who are ungodly sinners, into his friends.